Welcome back to Jack's Speed. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege to sit down with Carl Smith, a spectacular guy who wrote across the Atlantic with Tim called Carbon Zero, arriving to Antigua on January 28th, exactly a month ago. Keep listening to hear Carl's insight to carbon emissions and offsetting, and get to know what inspired him to row 3,000 miles in the first, first place. Your name and what do you do? My, my name is Kyle Smith, and I'm a final year PhD student here at the University of Strathclyde in electrical engineering. So I was, I was born in the US, uh, my dad's American, my mom's Scottish, okay. um, but grew up in the northeast of Scotland, and then uh, moved back to the US to finish up high school there, mm-hmm. graduated in the US, and then spent a year working in the US on a kind of forestry conservation crews, and then on a, a wildland uh, forest firefighting crew, mm-hmm. and then came back to Scotland for university, and did uh, my undergrad and master's in mechanical engineering with renewable energy, and then went to work for a company called Vestas Wind Systems in Denmark, and uh, worked on manufacturing wind turbines and developing wind energy projects. And then moved back to Scotland up in, to base myself up in Fort William, and worked on community energy projects, so kind of small-scale hydro projects, kind of smart grid projects up in the northwest. And that's how I got involved with this, with this PhD. It was kind of a more of an interest in, in electrical engineering and, and how power networks need to tran- transform to incorporate more renewable energy into yeah. it and electric vehicles and low carbon technology. It's an interesting area. It's an interesting time for the energy industry. Lots going on. The Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, what is that about? So the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge is a 3,000 mile ocean rowing race that starts in Lagomera in the Canary Islands and uh, goes all the way across the Atlantic to Antigua in the Caribbean. Uh, it now happens every year. And there's somewhere between 25 and 30 teams that compete in that race um, on an annual basis now. Every year there's a few few boats that get into difficulty, but there's pretty strict safety procedures and protocols in place to deal with uh, these eventualities if and when they happen. How long did you stay in Antigua? Just a, just under a week, yeah, just under a week. Yeah. How was that? Like, is it, was it just about finding your legs? <laughs> yeah, so the first two days it's really weird. It's like, it's like uh, being drunk almost, kind of come off the boat and you try to walk in a straight line, but you end up walking in a curve. And uh, we had to have someone like physically hold us for the first few hours until we kind of got, got used to it again. And uh, the next day, still a bit wobbly, but you can kind of walk on your own. And the third day, we're, we're pretty much fine at the end. Could you sleep again? Uh, I slept really well, actually. But there's stories of people going to sleep and uh, like kicking their partners in the middle of the night, or, like waking up and not knowing where they are. But no, I, I slept really well, so like a rock. Uh, but the first few days were about cleaning the boat out, getting it, mm-hmm. all the equipment uh, cleaned again, and then getting it packaged up so it gets shipped back to the UK. So we arrived on the Sunday night, and then by Thursday, our boat was packaged up, ready to get shipped back to the UK. So even though we la- we landed on, on dry land, there's still some work to do. And then I had Friday and Saturday to relax at the beach a little bit, catch up with family and friends, and then uh, then head back to the UK. So short holiday. Short holiday, short holiday, yeah. And, and you were the skipper. Technically skipper or team secretary, whatever you want to call it. So mm-hmm. this race has been going on since about 1997. Um, it started with just a few boats. And back then it was, uh, you'd actually, if you entered the race, they sent you a, a wooden kit boat. And you had to actually build your boat yourself. And then you had to ship it out to the Lagomera. And you rode across the ocean. And at the end, they'd actually strip everything out of that boat and have a bonfire. So it was cheaper to burn the plywood than it was to send it back for somewhere else. So when I was uh, a teenager, I saw this televised and transworld sport, which is like a Saturday morning sports show. And I thought, you know, one of these days I'd really like to give this a go. Um, and I'd been talking to my, one of my friends in my undergraduate at the University of Edinburgh in our first year there. Him and I used to do a lot of climbing and mountaineering. And so that was Brian, Brian Kerr. And uh, another friend, uh, James, who uh, I used to do marathons and triathlons with him, he's got a very you know, long sailing history and background and used to row for Edinburgh as well. And then Phil is a, a good friend of Brian and uh, I've known Phil for a couple of years now. The challenge was that two of us are based in the UK, two are based in the US. 
So the year and a half of planning going into it meant that we had to always have Skype calls. So every Sunday we'd have a Skype call at 8 p.m. GMT. And because we we're trying to limit our carbon emissions, we could only meet once for a training weekend. It's basically took two weeks holiday last June. And we all got together in the northwest of Scotland up in Fort William and uh, took our boat out on the small isles and actually recreated the row uh, from Isle of Egg to Talisker. So the people, that, the two, two brothers that founded Talisker Whiskey Distillery uh, originated in the Isle of Egg, McAllister brothers, and uh, they rode from the Isle of Egg up to the west coast of Skye, and uh, where they made landfall, they set up the distillery there. So we kind of redid that route as part of our training. Even when we started the, the, the race back in December 14th, the first couple of weeks we're still trying to get to use with one, used to one another, get used to the boat, still a bit of training going on there. But after the first couple of weeks of the row, we kind of settled into our routine and got uh, yeah, it was a bit more efficient, I guess. Where did you get the boat? So we went to a boat builder called Rosters, based in the south co- southwest coast of England. They built this boat in 2015, and uh, two guys rowed it in 2015, and then we bought it from them uh, in 2016. So um, and now we're shipping it back to the UK and hope to sell it onto another team that might want to row the Atlantic or the Pacific or the Indian Ocean or do an, an, some Arctic expedition with it or whatever. So. There's, uh, it's, it's a growing sport now, yeah. How was the typical day if you rode 45 days? Um, so it was almost, the 45 days was almost like one big, big long day because you're just doing two hours on, two hours off. So you're two hours rowing and two hours sleeping. Um, and it doesn't really matter if it's night or day, you're kind of eating at different times, kind of eating every two hours basically. So it's not really breakfast, lunch and dinner. You don't have that kind of big eight hour sleep just to mark mm-hmm. the next day. So everything just kind of rolls into you know, one long day essentially. Um, and when it was really stormy conditions, we'd switch to four hours on, four hours off because we couldn't actually row in those conditions. Um, our, our oars were getting knocked all over the place with the waves and we had to have one person hand steering to make sure that the back of the boat was always perpendicular to the oncoming waves. So there's a period of a week we had really bad conditions and uh, we just weren't able to row. So that, that was what we were doing for the mm-hmm. week. And we were doing four hours on deck, four hours sleeping. So it's just nicer to get slightly longer sleep. But then when you actually start rowing, you can't actually row for much longer than two hours and then have enough recovery time to get back on in two hours time. So, What about food? What did you eat? We had um, we packed 5,600 calories in a 24-hour ration pack. So um, that's they basically say 60, calori- 60 calories per kilogram of body mass. So as an average, we're about 90 kilos each when we started. So of the 5,600 calories, most of it, you know, three of us consume probably three to four and a half thousand calories on a regular basis. Um, Phil uh, took a long time to adjust the just the immune environment and got really badly seasick the first few weeks. Uh, so he, for the first few weeks, was only consuming maybe 800 calories. So he was he lost a lot of weight, but then gradually started to eat a bit more. And surprisingly, still managed to put a lot of power into the oars and was keeping up with the rest of us as well. So, Did you ever have any free time or was it just rowing and sleeping? <laughs> so it was pretty much rowing and sleeping. But uh, before we left, we made a big deal about trying to download a bunch of audiobooks onto our phones and onto yeah. our uh, MP3 players and whatever. And uh, so we all had great, you know, a huge amount of audiobooks, great mm-hmm. music and stuff on it. But uh, for some reason, our phones wouldn't charge. So we, we had music for the first week, but then we just couldn't get our phones to charge uh, on, the, on the main electrical system. On the, and so I think the, the sockets we had just weren't set up to deliver enough current for our phones. And it worked in, for some reason, it worked fine in the summer when we were training, but then we actually got out there over a week and stopped working for all of our phones. Like all of our phones would, would charge after the first week, which was really frustrating. Might have been to do with like moisture getting into them in the marine environment. Uh-huh. A couple of them just shut down completely. 
Um, so yeah, we had no music, no audiobooks. It was just us talking to one another at the end. So, <laughs> so was it physically or mentally more straining? Definitely mentally more straining. Mentally. Yeah. Did you get into arguments or anything that you? Usually, yeah. But I mean, they're small things as well. They weren't like big blowups. And the good thing is that whoever, I mean, it's a stressful environment. You're tired. It'd be mm-hmm. arguing over something small, like someone not closing a hatch properly or someone making a mess on the deck and not cleaning it up. Our goal was, our mission statement was to. Um, all four of us finished safely in Antigua within 45 days so and as friends at the end so we managed to meet that mission statement and we're still friends still talking to each other a lot of teams don't finish as friends <laughs> and there was only you, you second team second team in our in our class Two different classes there's a concept type that uh, this design is kind of gets a bit more windage so it kind of goes about one and a half times as fast as us in, uh, in windy condition and then there's a, a classical type the pure type uh, which doesn't have as much windage to it so yeah, we came second in, in, our, in our class which we're, we're happy enough with and we, we hit our target of uh, 45 days so. how quickly you have the fastest team so the concept one did it in about 29 or 30 days which was extremely fast just it just shows how fast the wind was going the type of swells we had and then for the pure class classical type I think did it in 39 days which is a world record so um, it was very fast condition um, well your aim was to make it carbon neutral what how did you aim to do that or how did you yeah so that? when we first decided we were going to do this uh, the 2017 event um, it was just when there was, it was in 2015 just as they were setting the their meeting as part of the kind of Paris climate change talks and we thought you know doing the event like this in some ways it's uh, it's quite a selfish undertaking you know we're just going out there to enjoy the environment enjoy being in nature and hopefully take away something from it that kind of builds, us, builds our uh, personal capabilities up a little bit and we take an experience away from it. So we thought, well, if we're going to be rowing across it without any kind of uh, diesel emissions or fuel emissions, we thought, what is actually our overall environmental impact as a project over a two-year period of time? And can we actually make this project entirely carbon neutral? So uh, once we got back to the UK, because uh, we went to the 2015 race start, just to kind of understand a bit more about the event, when we came back, we started to get in touch with the Carbon Trust and we pitched the idea to them and said, look, do you think it's possible to have a, a carbon neutral expedition? And so they took the standard called uh, PAS 2060, which, which is an international standard on carbon neutrality, which allows organizations and companies to uh, make their, their services or their product carbon neutral. And we took that and applied it to our expedition. So there's two elements to that. And one element is we have to show that we're making appreciable reductions in our carbon emissions during a specific period of time. So we said from the beginning of... 2017 until the uh, 31st of March 2018 would be our project timeline and we took all of our emissions that uh, so everything we purchased from the the boat the oars the life jackets the food were all put in the giant spreadsheets Um, and that basically goes into the carbon trust database and they pull out how many tons of co2 it takes to how much energy it takes to produce a kilogram of aluminium or steel or something that would go into each of the products so that was getting our, our carbon output, but we had to find ways to reduce it. So one way, uh, we, we all agreed that we'd cut red meat out of our diet for 2017, so we all stopped eating red meat, because uh, you know, farming cattle and the red meat uh, has a, quite a large environmental impact. Um, we all agreed we'd, we'd reduce our flying miles by 50%. Um, where we could, we'd walk into work rather than take public transport or, uh, or drive. Um, we also agreed that we would purchase second-hand clothes, so we would go to kind of used clothes stores and stuff, or eBay. Um, and yeah, if we're possible for our expedition, we try and buy used products, so used boats, used oars, where we could, um, and try, yeah, trying to use, use, not trying to buy buy brand new product and equipment. So that was kind of the carbon neutral aspect of it. So now we've submitted our final spreadsheet, 
because um, a lot of family and friends flew out to Antigua for the finish, so we had to include all their air miles in that spreadsheet. Um, so hopefully we'll get our final figure in, which will probably be somewhere between 20 and 40 tons of, of CO2. So, which so isn't is that too much, for the four yeah, of us? Or for, the four, for, the, for the whole team, basically, the whole, whole expedition, whole project. Um, but we'll have a finer, final figure hopefully in the next week or two. So, I mean, we, uh, we originally thought it would be somewhere between 100 and 200 tonnes, but it sounds like it's going to be a bit less than that, hopefully, yeah. yeah. Um, well, when you've done that kind of expedition, do you think that it's attracting there, or what kind of attraction, well, feedback did you get from it? Do you think that it does attract enough attention for the issues that you are kind of trying to promote? Yeah, I, I think. It, I mean, it's not. Uh, I mean, it's it's not that widely publicized. You know, it's not like it's not it's not like a big kind of uh, uh, TV show behind it or anything like that. I mean, they do do that little National Geographic documentary, um, and you get maybe a few news articles out here and there. But it's been nice to see the local news articles go out, and we actually had one person replying to a news article saying, "This is great, what you guys are doing. It's kind of made us all think about you know how we uh, live our lifestyles. You know, when, when we go to the supermarket, what products are we buying? Um, makes people think. You know, are we are we how do we live a slightly lower carbon lifestyle, I guess? And they also kind of start putting pressure on governments to do something about it and start implementing you know, a carbon tax, potentially. I think doing what we did was, it was a voluntary effort to say, okay, we're going to try and reduce our carbon emissions and we're going to keep track of all, all the products we've purchased and all the flights and travels we do and then work out how many tons of CO2 we've emitted. But the more universal way to do that would be to put the liability on the companies providing a service or products. It's up to them to do um, work out how much CO2 or what's their environmental impact for their products or what's the environmental impact of flying a mile um, and then build that into the cost of your, your air ticket or the cost of buying a car or the cost of I don't know, buying a steak or something in a restaurant. But there's nothing mandating or pushing companies to do that. If there's a carbon tax, then that's, they would force companies to, to be a bit more creative in, in that area. Do you that think area. that's possible that that would be? Probably not, no. I think a lot of people have talked about it for a long time, but um, I don't know if it'll happen. Maybe a bit more pressure, yeah. Basically, what you were doing is carbon offsetting. Carbon offsetting. And what kind of, because if there's a lot of confusion, what that is, what is that? So, it's, so I think it had a, got a lot of bad press, you know, 10 years ago when it first started to come out. But mm -hmm. now there's a number of standards in place. So there's a verified carbon standard, uh, which basically uh, a project that might be, you know, in South America or, the, or, or Central Mexico. So in this case, we're supporting a project in Guatemala that's uh, looking at rainforest regeneration. So if you plant a certain number of trees, every tree soaks in a certain amount of CO2. Um, and if it weren't for your funding, that tree wouldn't get planted. So if you plant a certain number of trees that soaks up the equivalent amount of CO2 that you've emitted for a specific project, then that's your, your uh, carbon offset. Um, so, but it has to be a project. There's a, an additionality clause in it that says uh, this project would not have happened without your financial support. So there has to show that the, that's, that would not have happened without, without your influence, I guess. So without our money going into it, these trees would not be planted otherwise. Do you, do you get any feedback? Because you, you did donate the money, or you're going to donate the money. Do yep. you, can you like see that, that it's actually going to happen, that they're going to plant the trees? And yeah, so, so we'll be buying our carbon offsets from the World Land Trust, and they have a, a verified project in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be buying. So every carbon offset you purchase offsets a ton of CO2. So when we work out from the Carbon Trust how many tons of CO2 we've emitted, we'll buy an equivalent amount of carbon offsets to offset those, those, uh, those, CO, that, those, CO, those CO2 emissions. Um, so hopefully in the next few weeks we'll be, we'll be doing that transaction. What advice would you give to others who are concerned about similar issues? What can individuals do? What can individuals do, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I'm, I'm probably a bit more cynical about it now, to be honest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, because I really like cheeseburgers, so I've started eating cheeseburgers again. So I, I wouldn't say that I'm... I'm going to go off red meat entirely. Uh, 
you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to draw a line because we can't all live in cardboard boxes and eat leaves all the time. You know, it's just not practical for most people to be doing that. So there needs to be some kind of greater incentive for people to make these lifestyle changes that uh, affects them personally. Because at the end of the day, climate change is like the ultimate tragedy of the commons. Nobody really, want, nobody really wants to do anything about it because it's, it affects them personally. If, you know, if I enjoy red meat, I don't want to stop eating red meat. I like flying, you want to go on holiday to Spain, people aren't going to stop going on holiday to Spain. So people aren't going to make these voluntary changes, I don't think. Um, so it has to be put onto companies to make these, these uh, start saying, well, uh, we're going to be an environmentally conscious company, so we're going to start producing products that are made with renewable energy, and maybe that becomes a bit of a marketing angle for them. So maybe we can go to, to a shop and say, okay, we're going to buy um, milk from a dairy that's 100% renewable or something like that, um, or from a sustainable um, cattle farm or something. So I guess maybe being a bit more conscious consumers would be one way. Um, the other way is the political aspect. I'm trying to push the government to put in some kind of environmental tax or carbon tax. And then maybe a third way is some kind of, we talked about some kind of like credit card system that people like a carbon neutral credit card that people would purchase all their products on and work out how many, it would automatically work out how many tons of CO2 you've emitted in an annual basis. And then to access the number of benefits, you have to offset your carbon footprint. So it'd be nice to see some kind of credit card or payment card solutions established that would allow you to do that. So it'd be a very easy way to monitor your carbon footprint. But then you have to kind of work with a number of companies to give you benefits for offsetting it in the end. So that might be another way to do it, which, which we thought might, might help incentivize people. So three options, I guess. What about the aviation? Because, or, and also cruise shipping, they're not really included in any policies. Yeah, I, I don't know why, actually. I think it's probably quite a political uh, area because, uh, you know, a lot of economies rely on this, this kind of travel and, and uh, you know, certainly you want to try and avoid any taxes on it. I mean, there's taxes mm-hmm. on air travel already. Um, and it's a very competitive industry as well. But um, you would have thought the right government policy and put in place would start to incentivize airlines to start looking at alternative fuels. And a lot of companies are looking at alternative fuels, but they've been doing it for a decade already. And nothing's really kind of materialized. So I don't know how you put more pressure on, on these airlines to do to, to change, I guess. In the cruise line industry, I, 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 don't, I don't know much about it, to be honest. I know they use pretty dirty fuel, but... Um, it's so cheap, fuel's very cheap, there's not really much of an incentive, economic incentive for these operators to start implementing more efficient uh, engines or more efficient distribution, electrical distribution systems mm-hmm. on ships. But then again, technology is changing, batteries are becoming cheaper, fuel cells are becoming cheaper, so maybe we're starting to move towards a, uh, a transition. But I guess fuel has to be more expensive, it has to hit the company's bottom line before they start doing something about it. But you think that it is more the company's responsibility in this matter as well? I think if you, if you want to have a big impact, it has to companies. I don't think we as individuals will do it on a big enough scale so that yeah. will uh, affect enough change. I think it has to be at a company level and it has to be political pressure on them. Do you think people know enough about it? Because I think Maybe not. Maybe there's a bit of a publicity aspect behind it, yeah. yeah. And starting to recognize uh, how people's actions actually affect the climate and affect the environment. I always remember as, as, a, as an undergraduate student, I lived in a house with uh, nine other people and our kitchen was always a mess. Like no one took responsibility for cleaning stuff up. Everyone just kind of put their plates there. No one really wanted to take on the burden of everyone else's mess. Basically, Everyone thought, well, I'm not going to sacrifice my time and effort to clean up after other people. And it's, you know, it's a tragedy of the commons on a small scale as well, but here we've got a much larger scale. So it's, yeah, it's a difficult one. It's a technical problem. It's a sociological problem, anthropological problem. Um, there's no silver bullet to it, I guess. And the question is, yeah, do, do you want to spend an extra you know, what, eight pounds offsetting your CO2 from it? And sometimes you see when you, you check out on, online for your air tickets, the option to offset. But you think, oh, an extra eight pounds, no, I'm not going to do it. No, I just click past. I don't know if there's some kind of incentive for people to do that, a personal incentive for people to do it. What are your plans for the, for the future? 
going to do other rowing events? No more rowing events, no. I think uh, it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience and uh, I'm quite happy not, not to sit in a rowing boat again, I think. Um, I think uh, we'll probably do some mountaineering stuff in the future. Um, main goal at the moment is to finish this PhD, get this out of the way. There's space for every one of us to think about our own carbon emissions. Maybe not all of us can do something like row across the Atlantic, but we can make small everyday choices, maybe even give up that cheeseburger. And people like Kyle, they really inspire us to do that. Thank you for listening. My name is Sivila Ponen. Tune back in for more podcasts on Stratspeak in the following weeks.